Well, good morning. It's good to see you all, and it's good to be in this place with each one of you in the presence of the Lord and in His people. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning? Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We're thinking about salvation or being saved. And uh, let me go ahead and just roadmap it for you. We're going to try to ask and answer three questions about salvation or being saved. And the first one is, from what are we saved? The second one is, by what means or, or how are we saved? What is the mechanism that saves us? And then thirdly, for what? What are we saved for or unto? So salvation, being saved. Really, this is right at the heart, the center of the message of the Bible. If you miss this, you've, you've missed it. It's about being saved. And today's is a gospel message. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ and our salvation. But it's not merely a, an evangelistic type message. In other words, the passage that we're going to look at today was written to Christians. Now, it's a great message. If you're here today and you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, you've never been saved, I, I hope that you'll hear this message and feel and know the need to be saved. But in fact, Ephesians chapter 2 comes in this beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church whom he loved. And uh, he wrote, I think, so these early chapters, chapters 1 and 2 really go together so that they would be knocked down, bowled over, and blown away by their salvation again. Not that they would be resaved. You can't be resaved. Once you're saved, you're saved. But I think he wants to bring them back to feeling and knowing their first love. That is Jesus. To be astounded by the grace of God that brings salvation. In fact, if you look back in, in Ephesians chapter 1, he told them something he was praying for them. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And I know I talk about it probably frequently. But he says that, he says, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Think about that. The eyes of your heart. That they might be enlightened about the hope that we have in Christ. About the riches of our inheritance and things to come in Christ. And about the power of God that is at work in you. The same power that was at work in Jesus. He's praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. By the time the book of Revelation is penned, and there are seven letters given by the Lord through the Apostle John to different churches, the church at Ephesus, same, same recipients here a few decades later, by the time that was penned, he will write, you know, I, I know that you're doctrinally pure, and you don't withstand any false teaching, but you have lost, you have left your first love. In other words, I take it that even before Revelation, back here when Paul has written this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's saying, I think, you've got head knowledge about salvation and you're saved. But you're only focusing up here. I don't see, I don't sense that you truly with your heart of hearts are feeling the impact and the centrality and the power of the grace 
of God. And so he prays it in chapter 1, and now he preaches it in chapter 2, flowing right out of that same thing. And really, I only have one purpose today. I have three questions I want to answer, but really one purpose. And here it is, because I think it's the purpose of this passage, is that we, too, would be gripped and grabbed and that we would experience anew the goodness and the graciousness of God. So maybe we want to aim a little lower than right here today. Though, you know, when, when, when information comes to you, it doesn't bypass your brain, but it shouldn't just stay there. We want it to flow, as my friend says, it's the hardest 18-inch journey in the world from here to here. And I think that's what Paul wants to do. So let's begin our passage today. And the first question is, as we think about salvation, saved from what? And here's the answer I think Paul paints in a picture. Saved from death row. Saved from death row. That is being condemned because of what our sin truly deserves. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Saved from what? Saved from death row. There is a thought that often lurks, I think, in the human heart, and we don't often catch it. It's maybe down there in the subconscious. And that thought is that we deserve the best. We deserve something marvelous. That, that God, that humanity, that our fellow man, that this world, that others owe us pleasure, success, ease, prosperity, blessing, good things, adoration, applause, and appeasement. That, that God and all of Humanity is here to satisfy our every whim. I was working on my sermon notes just last night and I was grappling around with this first part and thinking about how I'm going to come at this. And, uh, and my wife calls. She had just left. She calls and she says, Hey, got a flat tire. It's leaking rapidly. I parked it at the barn. I'm taking the truck. There you go. <laughs> And, and I'm sitting here with my stuff, you know, and I'm like, Lord, I'm doing your work. Though I should have done it all week long. I'm doing it now on Saturday night. And, and, and here's the thought that came in my mind. I don't deserve this inconvenience. I don't deserve this hassle. That was my first thought. And so I go out and the tire, I look at the front tire and I'm like, yep, it's flat. And then I start looking at it. And, and it's bald. I mean, really bald. And this is the car that I drive, by the way, day in and out. I live on a dirt road, a mile down a dirt road with sharp gravel. They're always grading the roads. Plus, I drive around the farm in this thing. And, and I had to let the tires get bald. I mean, I zip in. I don't even pay attention. I just zip in, and I get in that car, and I just zoom around. I'd been down to Little Rock the day before, or Conway, and uh, paid no attention. So, actually, I did deserve a flat tire. Just, I say, just just saying. But there is, I think, in us and most people, this tendency just to go, I deserve good and I deserve better. I deserve God's blessing. And as we enter into the topic of salvation, I just say all that to say, I think we 
need to feel what the Bible teaches us about what we actually deserve as sinners before a holy God. The God we've spurned, cursed, ignored, and rebelled against. He says, you were dead in your, what? Your trespasses and your sins. That is both active. The trespasses, when you see no trespassing and you climb the fence anyway. You're like, I want to hunt there. So you do it. It's, it's active. And then sin is falling short. You just miss the mark. You're trying, but you miss. And he says, in both of those, you, you've missed it. And you're dead in your trespasses and sin. We deserve what verses 1 through 3 say we deserve. You know, Ephesians 1 and 2. Ephesians is a really, I think, a happy book, a blessed book. He, and Paul takes a little right turn here. He veers off into a little, what we would call maybe negativity. You know, it doesn't, it's not happy, clappy preaching right here. And, and he paints a little bit of darkness. I love what John Stott says about verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 2. He says, it's like Paul is, is painting a portrait. Or he's doing this master painting and he's got his blank canvas. But before he can paint the bright and the beautiful things, he paints with dark colors in the backdrop to set the contrast so that we will see the beauty of our salvation. The black and the darkness is what man is without the grace of Christ. And then he will come in and he will show us what a person can become by the intervention of the grace of God. So let's look at some of these dark brushstrokes and what it actually says in verses 1 through 3 about what we deserve, about our spiritual condition when we're apart from Christ. Before God's grace comes in and saves us, where are we? What do we deserve? What's our condition? And the first thing he says, he says, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. You're not sick. You're not weak. You're not fragile. You're dead. Spiritually dead is what he says. And trespasses and sin. Not only that, you know, we tend to think, some people tend to think that Christians are bound by a bunch of rules and they're enslaved to religion. And, and you know, when I don't have religion, when I don't have God in my life, I'm truly free. Well, actually, this says that we're enslaved by some things apart from Christ. Verse 2. Before you were saved, you formerly walked in the course of the, this world. The world has an enslaving power over you. You want to fit in and you want to do what everyone else is doing and you are a slave to that. And not only that, he references some spiritual forces at work. He calls them the prince of the power of the air. I think it's in Colossians. He'll talk about principalities and powers and authorities. So there are spiritual authorities. We can think about Satan and demons and all kinds of things like that. And he says, actually, when you're unsaved, you're enslaved to those things, to the world and to spiritual powers. People think they're free, but they're not free apart from Christ. So you're enslaved. And he says, not only that, you were enslaved to the lusts of the flesh. All right? You were living according to the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the body. Now that's not to say, I mean, it's normal. God gave us bodily functions and urges and things like that that we are to take care of. And they're not bad. But when a need or a desire becomes overwhelming and it runs amok. It can enslave us. And that's what happens when we're in sin. And it can be any kind of sin. And yours could be different than mine. But he says, you are enslaved to the lusts of your flesh. Out of control. Insatiable lusts. I say to you, just look around at the world today. How people are. They have defined their entire identity. And, and their entire lives are all about satisfying 
an insatiable lust or desire. He says that's the person apart from Christ. And I love what he says. This is a mistake preachers I often make. He says, this was you. And then in verse 3 he says, well, actually all of us. We've got to admit that this was every one of us. Paul says, not just the Gentiles, but the Jew. Not just you, but me. We were all in the same predicament. And then he says, children of wrath. That is, we are under a death sentence. The wrath of God is upon our shoulders. And this is why I say, save from what? Save from death row. I think the ultimate picture, when you put all those things together, if you've ever seen the movie, The Green Mile, anybody seen that? One of my favorite movies, kind of, kind of a weird movie, but, but one of my favorite movies. And there's this guy that's been in prison, John Coffey, and he gets off the uh, transport and, and Percy, who's uh, one of the jailers there in that death row, man, he's a, he's a wicked guy. He's a bad guy. And he grabs John Coffey and he gets him out and he's taking him to a cell. And Tom Hanks is back there in the cell where John Coffey's going to go. And what does he say? Dead man walking. Dead man walking. Dead man walking. He's announcing that John Coffey is as good as dead. He's on death row. Oh, he's walking but he's dead. Dead man walking. And I think ultimately that's the picture we see of a condemned man and woman. Though they are alive outwardly, they are as good as dead spiritually. The wrath of God has come upon them. Their fate is sealed because of the justice of God. <clears throat> that's the dark brush strokes that Paul paints by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that we normally want to think about our human nature being that. But what he says in that, those verses is, you are by nature. It is in every cell and every fiber of your being. When you're apart from Christ, you are by nature children of wrath. wrath this sad and treacherous fate and state of affairs, it may not be positive. It may not be the self-help, um, uh, self-esteem stuff that you're taught out in the world. But I'm just going to say to you that this is what the Word of God says about the person who is apart from the saving grace of God. But now Paul then flips in verses 4 through 9 to begin to paint the bright strokes. So we're being saved from what? From death row from condemnation, from wrath that our sins deserved. And what are we saved? By what are we saved? Here is the central fact. And I want you to feel this today, folks, because that's what the passage says. You're saved by grace. You're saved by the grace of God. God giving the rescue that sinners need. Let's read verses 4 through 9. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Two 18th century British preachers, one of them is my favorite of all time, that's Charles Spurgeon. There was another preacher named Joseph Parker, and you may know that uh, Spurgeon had a lot of orphanages, places he would bring in orphans and care for them. And uh, Joseph Parker had made a comment about 
some of the orphans that were coming into Spurgeon's care, basically to the effect of that the orphans that come into Spurgeon's orphanage are in a very poor state. What he meant was when they come in, they are extremely needy. Spurgeon got the rumor that Joseph Parker had been talking about poorly about his orphanages. He thought Parker was saying that the orphans in Spurgeon's care were treated poorly. And so Spurgeon there at the great uh, tabernacle, he mounted the pulpit the very next Sunday and he unleashed and unloaded. If you've ever read Spurgeon's sermons, the guy had uh, the, the, the gift of gab. He had a power about his tongue and he blasted Joseph Parker for saying these things about his orphanage. Well, there were always reporters and newspapers there at Spurgeon's uh, church. And so all of his critiques of Joseph Parker made the news. Joseph Parker saw those reports. People were talking about it. And people flocked in to see Joseph Parker respond to Spurgeon's scathing critiques the very next Sunday. And Joseph Parker came up to his pulpit. And he basically said this. He said, I know that my dear brother Charles Spurgeon, they are taking up a love offering for their orphanages in their church today. And I think we as a church should join them in that love offering. And he called the men forward to take up the offering. And they said there was so much given that they had to empty the collection plates three separate times as they took up that offering. Spurgeon heard about what Joseph Parker had done and he went to visit him the next week. And listen to this. Here's what he said. You know, Parker... You have practiced grace on me. You gave me not what I deserved, but what I needed. You practiced grace on me, giving me not what I deserved, but what I needed. And I think the central thrust of this passage is to see God's grace. To be gripped by our transgressions but to see that in our transgressions and sin God gave us grace not what we deserved but what we need do you know that do you know that apart from God's intervening saving grace we are dead we are lost we are condemned we are without hope but God sent his son Jesus, God the Son, to come and to bear the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might go free. God's justice fully poured out on Jesus. The grace of God. The grace of God. But let's look at what is associated with that word in this passage, grace. First of all, Grace is associated with God's what? Rich mercies and his love. This same God that is perfectly holy and just and, and is set in his opposition to sin is also the same God. Not a different God, not a split personality. The same God who is rich in mercy and abounding in love. When you hear the word grace, you should, should think about God's mercy and his love. He is favorably disposed towards you and towards me. And it says, while we were dead, when we could do nothing in and of ourselves, you know what he did? He sent Christ and he makes us alive. 
The same God that breathed the breath of life into your infant body, into the womb, into your spirit, is the same God who breathes spiritual breath when a person is saved and gives you a brand new life. And then he says, he makes us alive and he raises us up and he gives us a place, a heavenly place, a seat at his table. You know, the grace of God is not finished when you're saved, by the way. When you get saved, you experience the overwhelming grace of God, but it ain't over yet. This says that for eternity, we are going to experience the riches of his grace. There is future grace. There is grace to come. We have not even but seen a glimpse of it or known it. There's grace to come. Oh, more about grace. And then he says this to clarify what he's talking about. You know, there is a tendency for us. I don't know why, but as we are saved, as we walk with the Lord for a while, somehow we start operating thinking that we're justified by our works. That our salvation is by our works. In fact, there are some people that teach that. And it is not true. And what Paul says, look down at uh, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you've been saved. By grace. It's, it's not of you. It's not of your works. He's very clear that when he says the grace of God is how you're saved, you cannot can not earn it. You can't work for it. You can be never good enough, be good enough. The only kind of works that we can do apart from Christ are what Hebrews calls dead works. Oh, you can do stuff, but it doesn't bring life. There are people trying to work their way to heaven. It doesn't bring salvation. Our problem is that we're separated from God. We've not believed. We've not bowed the knee to God when we're lost. And so he says, I'm pouring out my grace. I'm making it available. I, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. I want to bring you up out of that pit. And here's what I call you to do. Believe. He says, it's not by your works. Are we involved in it? Absolutely. He says, oh, you're saved by grace through your faith. Faith is looking on the Lord Jesus and believing that he is master and Lord and that he is the only way to salvation. It's an act of the heart, not of the hands. It's not something work. It is simply humbly accepting the goodness and the power and the grace and the salvation of God. That's what it is. If you're here today and you're saved, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it and I don't either. You're saved by the grace, the goodness, the kind intention, the mercy, the riches of God's love in Christ. You were in a pit and he sent his son down to rescue you from that pit. And so he says twice in this passage we read, hey folks, you're saved by grace. Marvelous, abounding grace. And the last thing, what are we saved unto? Saved for. What are we supposed to do now? You're saved unto good works. <laughs> Is that confusing? You're saved to do good works. Verse 10, for we, that is saved people, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Hey, let's not throw good works out as a bad word. Let's not strike it from our vocabulary because it's in the Bible. We just need to get it right and understand this. You're not saved by your good works. 
It's not the root of your salvation. It's the what? It's the fruit of it. You're saved for good works. What are you saved for? So that God's grace could continue to flow from you to other people, through you. Good works don't save you, but you're saved in order to continue to be a vessel of pouring out God's saving grace. And I'm just saying this today. We need a grace awakening. We need to get back, I believe, before we go out and get all pumped up about doing anything, we need to come back and say, man, the amazing thing about our salvation is God's goodness towards us. And let that sink in. I'll be honest, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make anyone feel the astounding grace of God. Other than what Paul did. Pray that people's hearts would be open to it and then preach about it and tell about it. Oh, of the goodness of his grace. I once was a wretch lost in sin, wallowing in the slavery of the flesh and of the world and of the devil. But the kindness of Jesus shone into my heart through another person sharing the gospel message. I do, I told you last week that uh, I want to uh, begin to share some things with you about sharing this amazing grace of Jesus. And we've got a video we're gonna, I want to show you. It's just three or four minutes. I'd like for you to take out uh, something to write on, something to write with. And here's the reason for this. People aren't saved apart from hearing the gospel. We've got to get the gospel to people. And I think that's part of the good works that's being envisioned in Ephesians 2.10. You're saved to tell others about the grace of God. But that's a daunting thing. And what I'm going to share with you in this little video, and this won't be the only Sunday we talk about it. I think I'm going to preach through the elements of it. This is called the three circles. Gospel presentation. It's just a tool. It's just a way for us to think about the gospel and then also to organize it in our minds and then to be able to share it with others. How many of y'all feel mm, overwhelmed, lack confidence, or you're just flat scared to death when you hear, I got to share about Jesus with somebody? Anybody? Well, good. Only two of you. The rest of you, you don't need to watch this. <laughs> it's overwhelming. Where do you start? There's a bunch to it. And this is just a gospel tool called the three circles. And what I'd like you to do with your paper and pen is just follow along as Pastor Jimmy Scroggins explains the gospel through the three circles. So let's, let's watch that. try to get ready to get reps to share the gospel of Jesus. So I'm going to show you the three circles, just the gospel piece right now on the board. 
The Bible tells us that God has a design for our lives, that God cares about every aspect of our lives. That's our families, that's our personal lives, that's our choices, our money, our sex life. Really everything about our life, God has a design for it. If we live according to God's design, then we have the opportunity to live in the arena of God's blessing. The problem is that all of us have a tendency to depart from God's design. When we depart from God's design, the Bible has a word for that, and the word is sin. And inevitably, when we sin against God, when we leave His design, we end up in a place that we call brokenness. Now, all of us know what brokenness feels like. It feels like emptiness. It feels like guilt. It feels like rejection. It feels like shame. It feels like regret. But when we get in this place of brokenness, we always try to fix it. So we try to maybe dive into a different relationship or try to make more money or try to become more religious. But whatever we do, we try to mitigate the pain of our brokenness. We try to escape our brokenness in some way. Now, brokenness really hurts and it feels like a terrible thing. But the truth is it's a good thing because brokenness draws our attention to the need for change in our lives. But the change that we need doesn't come from in here. The change we need comes from somewhere else. The good news is that the Bible tells us where that kind of change comes from. That kind of change comes from what's called the good news or the story of the gospel. Gospel is just the Bible word that means good news. The gospel is the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is the son of God, who came to earth and he never departed from God's design in any way, not even one time. But Jesus was crucified on the cross for, the Bible says, the sins of the world. That's my sins and your sins. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God did a miracle. He took the sins of the world, our sins, and put them on Jesus. And Jesus received the punishment from God for our sins. When he'd done everything that he came to do, he said it is finished and he died. They took his body off the cross, they buried him, and three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he could do what he came to do, forgive our sins and heal the broken places in our lives. The kind of change we need doesn't come from in here. The kind of change we need comes from the gospel itself. The Bible says that what we need to do when we find ourselves in brokenness is repent of our sins. In other words, change our heart, change our mind, change our direction, and believe the gospel story. That's the story of Jesus, how he was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. The Bible says if we'll repent and believe, then Jesus will come into our lives. He'll forgive our sins and begin to heal the broken places in our lives. And then the Bible says that God will give us the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. The cool thing about this is that we get to recover and pursue God's design from wherever we are. We don't have to turn back the past. We get to go and believe God and walk with God from right here. Now this is just the gospel piece. There's other things that you need to learn and other things that you need to rep. But I hope that this will help you as you learn to share the gospel of Jesus. Turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about the three circles. I want to close up today, and I do want us to have a time of response and a time of invitation. And, um, you know, maybe you're here today and you've never repented, turned to God, and believed. You've never been saved. Love to invite you to come and uh, come forward, pray with me, and make that known. Make that known. We're to confess Jesus with our mouth publicly. He is our Lord. That's part of the change process. 
So if you're here today and you need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved, to come out from the condemnation and wrath and into God's family, would you respond today? Or maybe you're like me. You're like the church at Ephesus. You're saved. But maybe the grace of God has just slipped off into the background. You've forgotten how good God is. You've forgotten that moment, that hour you first believed and the freedom that it brought. I just want to call you back to that place. That you, as you're here today, maybe the business you need to do with the Lord is just to open your heart to Him again. Call on Him. Ask Him to bring a grace awakening to your own heart. Whatever you need to do. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you're burdened, like we said in an intercessory prayer time, you're burdened by a lost family member, someone who's far from God, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, and you just want to pray for them in this time. That God would do a work in their hearts. However, you need to respond, pray, whatever it is. Do that in this time. Would you do the thing that Paul was praying for or his fellow Christians, probably for himself as well? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and let the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, your grace and love flood into our hearts today? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see and know, taste and see, experience afresh your astounding grace, to be gripped by your goodness, by how much you care for us. And then help us to live there, to stay there, to continue, continually nurture a heart of grace and love and compassion. And help that to be the blood that courses through our veins, to be the thing that enlivens our speech and our, even our faces. Help us. Help us in our relationships to be like Christ, to be full of grace. Help us, we pray. Lord, would you do that for us, for your people, as we submit to you, as we seek you, as we look to you. Would you do some marvelous turning around in our own lives we who are Christians Lord I pray that you would help along the path those who are at the point of perceiving your salvation we pray these things in Jesus name Amen